Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and fully self-enlightened one. So uh, <clears throat> this evening I just want to um, revise a lot of what we've said about the skills, these uh, skills of meditation, <clears throat> and uh, see if any questions arise from it. I think one thing, the fir- well the first important thing is to recognize what um, these techniques are. Um, Often we think it's, we might make the mistake of thinking that it's the technique which is um, uh, creating the insight, you might say. If you get the technique perfectly, perfectly right, insight is bound to arise. <laughs> um, but if you look at other areas such as, you know, sports, tennis, things like that, or instrument playing, you know, <coughs> uh, these uh, musicians and um, uh, sports people—they spend hours practicing. Yeah, they, you know, like the, the backhand over and over again, <clears throat> or going up and down the scales. But then, when it comes to actually playing the game, playing the instrument, it's a different situation, isn't it? Because if they are thinking about their skills, then it's going to sound pretty turgid. They're definitely going to miss uh, being in the moment when the shot comes over there more worried about their, what their backhand is like. I had a, a friend, you know, in um, Bangkok who was the he was a Chinese and he was Australian champion uh, for um, table tennis. And he said, he, um, before he got this, and he actually, on one game, beat the world champion, which was very good, he thought, for himself. But he, to do this, he'd gone to Japan and he said, the, the Japanese know how to train you. Now he's Chinese, and he said <clears throat> they they have a really rigorous training program which really lifts your game, but the Japanese don't win, and <laughs> and he said the reason for this is that they can't stop practicing, they can't actually just play the game, let the practice go and just play the game. They're still they're too bothered about about you know getting the shot right or something like that, so. These techniques are the same. All they're doing is, is laying the ground, preparing a, um, a basis for insight to arise. But the insight itself arises um, because of the power of your attentiveness. Hmm? So all, all these exercises, all these techniques are doing are just helping you to attain the right sort of attentiveness, the right sort of focus, and, uh, and pointing you in the right direction. And of course, uh, this intuition that we talk about, this sati panya, this, uh, this intuitive awareness, uh, is beyond the control of me, see? It's not, it, I, I can't sit here and say, well, I'm going to meditate now for now an and I'm going to have an insight into Nibbana. <laughs> it's, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that, it's very frustrating. Again, I'm, I'm reminded of somebody I met who, uh, this is going way back when Vipassana was just coming 
in, in, you know, as a practice in the 70s or something. And he said um, he'd heard about this course, meditation, and Nibbana, you see. So he joined a week's course, and um, it's like anything else. If you do a course, you know, in cookery or something or whatever, uh, they tell you what you'll achieve by the end of the course, and you get a certificate. <laughs> so he was, he'd presume that, you know, one week he'd get Nibbana and get his certificate. <laughs> it was a huge disappointment when he realized it wasn't quite like that. So <clears throat> these techniques are to be seen for what they are, just simple techniques preparing the ground for the real, uh, the real and actual moment-to-moment mindfulness that the Buddha talks about. And um, you, can f- you can see when you're getting caught up in that, when you're getting too worried about whether you're doing the technique right, you know, whether you've got it perfect. It's like, you know, there's something wrong there if somebody is uh, really getting anxious about, am I doing it right? You know, is this, is this have I got it perfect? You know, <laughs> so be careful of that, of that um, idea of, perf- of perfection as such. Uh, the other thing to say about techniques is that it's, it's not so good to, um, uh, to mix them because these various Vipassana techniques do have their own uh, pros and cons. They've got their own drawbacks and their own advantages. And um, if you mix it, it's sometimes confusing for the teacher, especially if you don't tell them <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> so it's, it's good to keep on one line because um, the teacher generally can spot or can see when uh, something goes wrong from the report that the that the meditator gives, you see. But if they're mixing stuff, it doesn't work. It's like um, these alternative medicines, isn't it? You know, you're not supposed to do acupuncture and homeopathy. It confuses both <laughs> the acupuncturist and the homeopath because you're getting um, the effects from both. So this is, you know, much the same. Um, All these techniques have arisen out of uh, some teacher. So this is the Mahasi. And uh, these techniques you can find, all of them you can find in the commentaries. It's not that he made them up, but somehow he put them together in a way and he himself was an inspiration where it began a new school. That's basically what happens. And it usually happens when there's a... You know, there isn't much meditation about. It's sort of faded. And then you get this sort of revival. And the Mahasi is probably... He and a man called Ubakin, who began, who began a, a system, also mainly... Uh, we know it mainly through Goenka and his, and his centres in the West. And these two really did affect the whole Theravadan world and with their uh, methodologies. Uh, he himself was um, was interesting because he was actually a scholar and um, a renowned scholar and this meant that he was the sort of person who was very much up in his head so the technique he uses of noting is specifically good <laughs> for those people who are head bound just to keep the thoughts from not wandering away and I've always presumed that's why he, he developed it 
I've never been able to um, determine whether that's right or not. But it definitely works in keeping the mind, you know, still on the object. I think the other thing you have to be careful of when you come on a retreat is, again, this business of gaining something. Um, if you have in mind a goal, then of course all your efforts move towards that goal. And in doing so, you, you sort of miss everything. It's like people who go for walks in the country and their idea is just to get to where they're going. And they're, they're like that. <laughs> when they get there, but they're sort of missed out on the country. So uh, be careful that you don't have any goal. It's best just to be completely open and let the, um, let the practice itself manifest what it has to offer you. It's like going to a country, a strange country, for the first time, and you've got no particular idea of what it is you want to see. Well, of course, when you go there, you're very open, you see, and, and you tend to see much more. But if you go there with just the idea of seeing ancient sites or tasting the food and whatnot, that's all you get. See? So... <clears throat> Have that sort of attitude of just open exploration. And then you'll see it, it offers you quite a lot. So it offers you an understanding of your, of your physicality, of your body. It offers you um, an understanding of your psyche. And by the word psyche, I'm referring to the heart and mind. Uh, we've sort of lost the word which combines those two ever since... We can blame Descartes, you know, blame somebody. Because <laughs> he split off the mind, didn't he? And everybody got headbound. But in the old um, way of explaining uh, the human being, there was, you know, there was a word which conjoined both the heart and the mind in one. So we have the word soul, psyche. Um, and we sort of lost that a bit. So now we have to keep saying the heart and the mind, or emotions and thoughts, but... In a sense, they're both one and the same process. They're just two sides of the same process. So uh, it, it's uh, an ability to you know, recognize just how the psyche works, how these two things work, and how we create the world. And of course, there's spiritual insights. And in Buddhism, a spiritual insight isn't to do with some sort of um, transcendental, you know, um, understand uh, uh, communication with another being or something like that. A spiritual insight in in uh, in Buddhist understanding is uh, uh, the final level of consciousness. That's what it is. So, if you look at um, the evolution of consciousness, not just in terms of the beings that you see, like animals and all that, but just in ourselves, from the point where we're born. To where we are now, you know, we don't think like a, a newborn baby. It's not, it's not. I, I don't think it's possible. <laughs> We've all lost that. We don't think like a three-year-old anymore. We don't have the magic anymore. You know, I mean, uh, up to about the age of seven, we live in a world where we believe what we imagine. Yeah, that's why Father Christmas can come down the chimney. It's not a problem. So all these things manifest a different relationship to the world. And what we're trying to do is to take that process of consciousness, that process of relationship, to the very end. And what manifests at the very end? 
very end is in a complete accommodation with the way it is. So there's no struggle. There's no wanting for what you for what for what other than is given, and there's no tr- attempt to destroy or annihilate what we don't want. So it's a, it's a contentment with the way things are, whether they be pleasant or unpleasant. And that's, that's the state of non-suffering. It doesn't mean to say you don't have physical pain, it's just natural to the body. But in terms of the heart-mind, the psyche, it manifests a very different relationship. And um, for that to happen, there has to be this... Um, uh, pulling out, as it were, of its um, confusion with the body and the psyche, this, this psychophysical organism, of our intelligence, this intuitive intelligence. And now all these techniques are to do with that, that's all. All these, you know, when I talk about distancing, I mean objectifying, I mean, I mean being able to turn the inside as objective as we now see the outside. You know, you don't come into this room and say, this is me be put away inside that's all we're doing we're turning all this inner furniture this inner environment these inner walls that we see the body and all that we're turning it very slowly into an objective world and in so doing we're no longer reacting with it and that's what produces this inner peace even when you're disturbed even when you're angry when you're stressed you can still find a still small point within that storm you see so that's what these uh, techniques are hoping to do and of course uh, not just here but to actually take them into daily life right? yeah? it's something that uh, is continuous you can't stop spiritual practice it's like climbing a mountain if you stop you can stop so long and then you get cold and you want to come down at the end of that <laughs> you've got to keep going so it's the same with uh, spiritual practice it's it's, um, it's um, well, you can't stop it. You've got, to, you've got to keep going once you're in it, you see. In other words, now that you know, or beginning, or for some of you beginning to intuit this level of consciousness, you can't go back on it. It's a piece of knowledge, you know it. Okay. And this awareness that we have, this intuitive awareness that we have, will always be in somewhere or other wanting to seek its own liberation. So this is beyond uh, beyond the idea of some sort of me or mine. It's something deep within us which seeks liberation. And that's what we really mean by the Buddha. Hmm? So if we um, uh, just consider some of the techniques now, this noting, so, <clears throat> the noting is primarily, as far as I'm concerned, is to contain the thinking mind. But it also has the effect of pointing you to actually look at something. And the Mahasi talked about it like throwing a stone at a wall. So it's like, it's like making you. Hmm? So as you say, rising, 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 it's like it's, it's pushing your attention to where you want to see. See? And it's like a, uh, a push towards it. Now, one of the problems that might come up is that the word seems to get in the way of what you're looking at. It seems to be very loud in the mind. It seems to, in a sense, obscure what it is you're looking at. Now, when that happens, you see, what does that tell us? It tells us that 
our intelligence, this satipanya, is locked into the intellect. In other words, it's always seeing things through the intellect. Now, in our daily life, this is sometimes uh, quite obvious to us. I mean, even if we take a flower, um, uh, these... Um, oh, I've forgotten the name of them. <coughs> no, no, this one here. This, uh, orchids. orchids, thank you very much. <laughs> you see, when you, when you look at an orchid, if, if you've seen lots of orchids, you don't, you don't really see that orchid. What you're seeing is fitting into your conception of an orchid from all the other orchids you've seen. It sort of flips into a, a category of orchids. And we trick ourselves in thinking that we're actually seeing that orchid. But it's only when you begin to place your eye on it and really see it, really actually see the delicacy of it the, and the different little bits and pieces, that in a, word, in a sense the word orchid begins to disappear because what you're seeing is something quite unique. And this is something you can practice while you're here. You know, the flowers are coming out and um, uh, you can just place your eye on it and you'll see that by just doing that, by, by saying the word looking rather than naming the flower, uh, you'll see that very slowly you just become quite concentrated upon what the flower is offering you. Right? The flower doesn't want to be categorized. And that's clarifying this ability to see things as they really are. Hmm? That's one of the pat phrases that you get throughout the, the scriptures. To see things as they really are. To see and understand things as they really are. Not as I would wish them to be, as I think they are. And thinking, uh, thinking that we know something is, is one of our big delusions, isn't it? I think, see? We confuse the thought with the actual experience. So a word actually helps us to just stay there so long as the word is reflecting more the, um, the process that we're doing, like looking, seeing, touching, feeling. Hmm? It doesn't mean to say that in certain things we can't use a noting word to describe what it is we're experiencing, which is pain or something like that. And... Um, the noting word also just helps us, as it were, to keep a distance because it's, it's sort of, as it were, in a sense anyway, pushing the object away so that we can actually note it. It's all part of that process of pushing something away to look at it more clearly. See? When we get involved in a pain or an emotion, uh, there's that, that falling into an identity with it, we can't see it because, in a sense, we're suffering it. We're more concerned with how I feel about it rather than seeing it uh, objectively. So when, for instance, uh, pain comes from the posture, your back or your knee, see, that's an opportunity to just say pain, pain. And uh, the more you say it, you see, the more it pushes away. The more you can see it objectively. Hmm? So um, the word has, uh, it does have an effect on the way that you're looking. And if, it's, if, it is, if it does have this effect of being in between you and the word, see, just, keep, just keep, keep the noting going, but keep putting the attention on the object. And very slowly the word, as it were, disappears. It begins to move into the background, as it were. And it's like a background note which is pushing you forward. And this tells the meditator that this intelligence they have is slowly emerging out of its confusion with thought. 
So uh, if you find that, just keep just keep gently working at it. Uh, now the other thing about noting is it has to be deliberate because it's actually a, an act of uh, noting. It is a you know, deli- so that's why some of you have already noticed that you can be happily sat here saying rising, falling. Your mind's miles away. When you come back, you're still saying rising, falling. <laughs> it's just, and that tells us how how mechanical it can become and how easy it is to uh, create a habit in the body. You create a habit in the body. I mean, again, going back to sports and, and musical instruments, um, you know, just running up and down the scales of a piano, the, the fingers just do it. They don't have to think about it. Even for us, when we walk across the road, we don't have to think about our legs. I mean, you have to think about your legs while you're walking. It's terrible, isn't it? But you just go, and the legs sort of follow you. you know, moving up and moving, flapping away underneath you. And you don't, you, don't, you don't notice that. And if you consider lots of things that you do, it's all automated, it's all that. And thank heavens for it. Thank heavens for it. Here, however, we are trying to be mindful even of the minutest movements because we want to really catch uh, intentions. And we'll come to that, um, the, the, uh, the importance of catching intentions towards the end. So that's, uh, that's the noting business. And uh, the other thing is, of course, to keep it going um, until it becomes quite habitual and it just stays there. Now, one of the reasons it becomes habitual is because every day we're doing the same thing. It's really boring. Seven days of doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> you walk from here to the dining room, you eat, and you go to your bedroom, you go back, and then you come back here. Like this, you're always doing the same thing. And this makes it very easy uh, to you know to to really paint to really uh, make very clear to ourselves our uh, you know the the process of thought of intentions of actions. When I did this long retreat uh, with my teacher um, in Burma, um, all day long I was stuck in a room like this. We didn't go out because the windows are open. There's no point. Yeah, and it's too hot anyway in the sun. So all day long I'm in this room sitting and walking, never going out. And then there were two times, well, three times we, were, we went out, one for breakfast, one for lunch, and one for a drink. And it was just down the stairs, across the yard, and you sat at the table, right? And the breakfast was always the same. <laughs> lunch was slightly different. Mm-hmm. And, the t- and, and the drink was always the same, this sort of dreadful chemical orange juice. <laughs> and then you went back up, up the same stairs, across the same way, like you see. And... Uh, w- what that does is, of course, it, it makes it very, it begins to make it very, very simple to watch the most minutest movement of the body and mind. See, because you're not, wor- you're not thinking, there's no choice left. See, you don't say to yourself, now, shall I go down this way or shall I go down that way? No, if you go down this way, there's only one way to get there. <laughs> so, <clears throat> by, by, you know, sweeping away any idea of choice and, and confusing choice with freedom, you're simply doing what you have to do, you see. And the more you restrict yourself, the less the mind has to think about what you have to do. And this means that you can really, really settle down to observing the minutiae <coughs> of how the body and mind work, you see. Now, uh, the reason for that, of course, is that when you see how it works, you know, and, and we're specifically interested in how we create suffering for ourselves, then, of course, you, you see the way out. Okay? 
unless um, unless we can see how it is that we create problems for ourselves we're not we're not going to see a solution but when you see how we create the problem then the solution manifests at the same time that's all the buddha did so remember we're following the same path as this um, ancient personage 2500 years ago i mean he just sat under a tree and walked about a bit and sat under a tree <laughs> walked about a bit and he began to see, you know, where the suffering was arising from. So, um, <clears throat> that habitual practice and the noting, you see, it just allows us to go deeper and deeper into the process of mentation, the process of the body. Um, I think that's just about covers the f noting. Does anybody else have any have any questions or something about noting as such? Have I missed something? I suppose one thing is not to worry about the word too much. Sometimes there are many experiences we have for which there just isn't a word. Um, just a general word, feeling, thinking, you see. Always remembering what the word is trying to do. If we find ourselves getting caught up in is this the right word or the wrong word and we're searching for a dictionary, then you definitely <laughs> definitely lost the plot. Is there sort of tension between the benefit of noting in objectifying whatever it is, but at the same time the desire to actually experience what that is? So there's a sense in which you're pushing it away, but at the same time, you're not. You're, you're trying to also fully be fully conscious of the experience. No, that's a very that's a um, that's a you know a really crucial point to understand. Uh, the word helps us to push away so that we get some objectivity, some sort of witnessing, some sort of um, ability to be objective with what it is that we are trying to experience. Then, as it were, once, that, once you've got that position of being objective, once you've got that position where you know that you're not being caught up in the um, feeling or the emotion, one then, as it were, goes towards it, you see. And hopefully through, you know, during the week sometime, hopefully just through the, just through that, um, uh, the power of that curiosity and the power of that focus, yeah? there's as it were a collapse into the object the word disappears and there's just the pure experience now that's really your true vipassana moment but that you can't make happen this is the point you see? because then at that point the self also disappears it's like when you fall asleep see? where are you? where have you gone? and who wakes up? See? so it's like you're moving towards that just by this noting, but it's the interest and the curiosity which will draw you towards the object you're trying to understand and feel. Presumably the moment that you do achieve that kind of being in that experience, the moment you, you notice that, you've lost it. Exactly that. Yes, that's right. That's right, yes. Yeah. It's one of these paradoxes that you're most happy when you know when you don't know it. As soon as you know you're happy, you've lost it. 
It's like when you watch a film. You're perfectly happy, completely enthralled by the film. And then it ends. That's it, you've lost it. <laughs> but our, our uh, aim is really <coughs> uh, to uh, become very intimate with the body, heart and mind. And uh, not to be too concerned about that business of losing, uh, the, the, you know, becoming, collapsing into that process, because that happens naturally when the uh, conditions are right. Even at the level of objectivity, you can still you're still having uh, insights, spiritual insights, because you you are observing impermanence. You're observing your reaction to things, you see, and you're also be, by creating that distance, recognizing that what you're looking at can't be what's looking, because because you're looking at it. So these these themselves are, uh, you know, true spiritual insights. And again, remember, what we mean by spiritual insights is a change in the way we relate to the world. Now, these are uh, radical ways, of, radical ways, radical changes in the way that we see the world. So if you notice a pattern of thinking, say judging, for example, so if you notice that the thoughts that come into your mind are judgment, or judgmental of either of yourself or of other people, on a... On a repetitive basis on a frequent so you notice a sort of habit of that then what's the process for reflecting on that which doesn't is there a process for reflecting well on one reflecting on it? well if for instance something like that is coming up you know as a constant judging judging you see the first thing to recognize is that you can't change that it's a conditioning it has to run at, run its course and it'll run its course and empty itself of its energy so long as we don't identify. And by noting it as judging, you're not identifying. Otherwise you'd be judging. Okay? But you can hear these little judgments going on. Yeah, I'm no good. She's no good. They're no good. <laughs> They're better than me. I'm worse than them. And you see, you just, you just hear that going on. But by just observing it and noting it, it no longer has power over you. That's the point. Uh, but we'll deal with those things more clearly tomorrow when we talk more about the hindrances. Mm. So, um, sitting. So remember that uh, your, your sitting posture is you know, the very physical representation of the enlightened mind because there is that alertness in the posture, the energy, but there's also to be the relaxation. Hmm? And those two are the qualities of your observation, a relaxed and but alert looking. And of course that's difficult for us because one way we either fall asleep or the other way we get tense, you know. And it's just being aware of that and just bringing, bringing that. it's always starting with that calmness, you see. Starting with the calmness and then raising the curiosity. That's the way to do it. And uh, don't struggle with pain. The, uh, <coughs> the, the telltale is, as soon as pain, whether it's physical or emotional, has actually made it difficult to investigate, then that's it, you cut, you go for a walk, you take a break. There's no point, you see, because this is a process of investigation, and if you can't do it, what's the point of suffering it? See? And then, of course, one builds up a resistance. You know, you can take a bit more pain and all that.
that sort of stuff. You can hang around with very difficult emotions more. See? And um, I think you have to be um, slightly careful not to push that because you can frighten yourself. That's one of the problems. <laughs> and and just, just go easy with things. Um, in the long-term view, um, in, in, in the Buddha's understanding, so long as there's a self, there's going to be an existence. So we have an eternity of time to, <laughs> to sort this one out. There's no need to, to get into a panicky rush about it. And even if, even if we uh, are more inclined to believe in one life, then the meditation works in that you know, it's, it's at least sorting out this present moment and hopefully uh, we'll make our future life a bit more easy to live with. Yeah? That's the important thing about the sitting posture, you know. Right? Don't don't struggle with pain to the point where it's, you can't do the investigation. Now, the walking, you see, uh, is is really important. People tend not to see its importance, but it's it's extremely good for developing this calm attentiveness. It's very calming, and you don't have to go, you know, so slow. When you're going so slow like that, like we do in the evening. Uh, that's that's really also to investigate, right? Because the feeling of the foot rising is different from the feeling of the foot moving forward. It's different from the feeling of the foot uh, falling, and it's different from the feeling of the foot pressing. And it's these discriminations that are making that are sort of tuning this intelligence, making it more sharp, making it to see things that previously it would have just seen as just one, one, one feeling foot moving through the air but you can also use walking gently up and down just to develop this calm abiding so it's a very powerful exercise so don't uh, you know try and do as much of it as you can I know I know there's a tendency to rush off for a cup of tea <laughs> uh, but uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with having a cup of tea you understand uh, but uh, often it's sort of lengthens out to 40 minutes and then you do 10 minute walking <laughs> come back and sit but it's much better if, if you do want to have a beverage then make it, make it short and sweet and really just, just keep walking up and down yeah? going slow so that's his other big technique the Mahasi's technique um, Really try to, you know, um, if you find yourself rushing anywhere, see, just stop. Just stop, stop in your tracks, see, and just, and just let the energy fall away. And then just take your time. I don't think you ought to be going faster than left, right, left, right. That's about it. If you're going faster than that, you're rushing. <laughs> and uh, try to find little things during the day when you can really take your time. Now... This door, for instance, you see, um, you can actually open and close it completely silently. Right? You don't have to bang it to or push it to. Right? <laughs> and you can, you can make the opening of that door a specific exercise. I always know where people are by how they go out through that door. <laughs> Pushing the door open to your bedroom, you see. Just, just do it very slowly and just sort of communicate with the, with the, with the spring, you know. 
certain things you can't go uh, so slow you can't brush your teeth at that speed you'd never finish but there are many things that you can do where, you, where you're not actually holding anybody up that's the other thing about uh, the bathroom there may be people waiting but there are many things that you can do which you can go really slowly at and just, just observe it and the main place of course is when you're eating hmm? if you finish before me you're definitely going too fast because <laughs> I'm eating at a, what I would consider to be just an, an ordinary pace an ordinary pace And of course, the more you go slow, the more you see. I mean, we've all seen these films on TV of nature, you know, like a, uh, uh, these um, a butterfly or a, you know, these hummingbirds, how, they, how their wings flap and you can actually see it. And it's just slowing the film down frame by frame. So that's all we're doing. The slower you go, the more you'll actually see. You'll see the connections. So we chant this dependence origination in the morning. So the Buddha there, I mean, I'll go into it more deeply towards the end of the week, but the Buddha there is showing us that although we experience life as one continuous thought process, thought emotional process, actually there's myriads of little processes going on. And what we're catching are sort of end products. Okay? And these processes are going on continuously throughout the day. Okay? Even, as you know, even for, to see something, there has to be a process whereby, you know, the, what hits the retina has to, be, uh, has to be sensed in the mind, it has to be categorized, it has to be put into some sort of mm, picture. And what, but what we see is the final product, the picture. Same with hearing. There's a whole process going on from the point where all there is is pressure on the eardrum. By the time we get to, uh, you know, alarm bell or bell, Bell to sit. That's gone through a whole load of, of mental processes to get there. But what we're always aware of is the end product. You see? And what we're also, you know, specifically interested in is not just the way that um, we produce a certain concreteness about our existence, a certain substantiality, whereas in fact it's all these myriad processes going on. Um, is to see it as, a, as something transient. But also we're interested in this relationship we have. You know, wanting, not wanting, wanting, not wanting, wanting, not wanting. Okay, and that's another, that's another level of this, of this mental process, which for the most part we're not really aware of. You know, just watching people around supermarkets, they don't distinguish uh, you know, the, the product that they're looking at and the wanting of it. It's, it's already my product. As soon as they see it, it's my product. <laughs> They've already bought it. And that, that for us is very important to see the distinction between liking something, disliking something, and wanting and not wanting. Pleasant, unpleasant, wanting, not wanting. And that will become more and more, uh, more, and more uh, obvious to us the more we slow that process down. Okay? So make an effort um, over the next few days to just take your time, basically. Take your time. So, um, finally, there's this intentions. Um, intention in... Um, now, first of all, what we mean by an intention here is um, a desire, right? It's not been empowered. 
So it's a desire which is arising. Is a, is a very important moment in Buddhist psychology because as a desire, it's not having a conditioning effect. It's not an action. It just lies as a potential in the mind. But if we, if we um, act on it, or as they put it in these, these awful committee speak, if you action it, <laughs> then it immediately becomes an act. And once that happens, it will have a conditioning effect within us. And of course, it'll produce something. If it's, if it's wholesome, it'll produce something wholesome within us. If it's uh, unskillful, it'll produce something um, unwholesome. So that's why the accent is always on when you're sitting and you hear the bell go or you've done the reflections and it's time to go up, intending to rise. So now you're, now you're empowered, you see. You're not acting like an automaton. You're watching the intention arise, intending to rise. See? Now that's the moment you can reflect and say, is this a good thing to do or a bad thing? Now, is it skillful or unskillful? Virtuous or unvirtuous? That's the only moment you've got in terms of choice. Once you rise, you've lost it. You've already created an act. See? That's why in the standing meditation, you see, you can stand there and say, intending to walk. Nothing happens. Stand there all day. Intending to walk. See? Now these intentions, remember, they're not huge, strong desires. We're not talking about cravings. We're just talking about an in a simple intention, a wanting to walk. And you can stay there with intending, nothing happens. And then suddenly there's a decision and your foot moves. So this is a magical moment, isn't it? How does something move out of potential into an actual? Okay. Now that moment of actuality the Buddha actually calls will. And at that point there's, an act is created and then you can't, you can't stop its, its product. It's already gone into the system and if it's something out there, it's gone into the world and you'll get, you'll get your response. And again, we'll talk about karma in that uh, larger sense uh, towards the end of the week. So that's why when we're eating, you see, rather than get caught up in this natural appetite that we have, just get lost in it, turn it into a greedy thing, just by noting the intention, what desiring to eat, you see, having made a previous intention that you're only eating to nourish the body and you're reaffirming that intention every time you eat. So these are conditioning acts. And the more we condition ourselves to eat to nourish the body, the less we're going to find ourselves with some you know, eating problems. Hmm? And that's, of course, one way to come out of an eating problem if we find we have one. It's just not reinforcing the intention to eat for comfort's sake or for happiness or... And so <clears throat> intention is a really important thing to note. And if you can uh, at least begin by noting main intentions, which is the intention to rise, um, the intention to walk somewhere, the intention to start your sitting, the intention to eat. If you can start by noting those, they create a natural break, you see. You're actually stopping for a moment. They're a natural stopping. And in that moment, there's this, there's this ability to reflect and what this is showing us is that, you know, if we were to take this full time, then we'd become in charge of our lives. Begin to be in charge of it rather than, uh, you know, 
behaving by old conditionings or coming under other people's influence. How we uh, we gain our, you might say, autonomy. So uh, you'll be hearing me constantly encouraging you to note your intention. There's a little passage in the Visuddhimagga, which is a sort of a later commentarial work in which a teacher is uh, teaching his students. And at one point, uh, he raises his hand and he stops, stops talking. And then he just puts his hand very gently back there. And his students say, what happened there? (laughs) He said, I didn't. I didn't note the intention. It was just just a, an old automatic thing that he that he did. But if you're if you're quite wide awake, you see, if you're really awake, you'll note the you'll 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 see it come across the mind. Move your hand, you know, intention to move your hand, intention to scratch. Hmm? So that's the same with um, when you get an itch, you see. So you, you note your intention. You try and handle the itch as much as you can. Right, and you you see this enormous desire to scratch. <laughs> and when you can't take it anymore, say intending to scratch, and then just watch how the mind reacts to how it becomes relieved of its tension once once you've given yourself a good scratch. So, uh, these are your basic uh, components of your practice: this continuous noting as best as you can. Uh, going slow and slower hmm? and trying to choose certain actions during the day where you really do things very slowly so that you've got a standard. That's why we walk together in the evening. Uh, there I hope to create a sort of standard for you of, of going slow hmm? and then try and do that as much as you can during the day. And uh, noting intentions. Mm. On the just as when you're intending to eat, there's a sort of backstory about the intention, which is your your deep your bigger intention is to only eat for healthy purposes. Then I suppose for many other intentions, you can in order to decide rather than simply noting that you're intending to do it and then doing it. If there's a possibility of saying I'm not going to do it, you need a kind of backstory of intention about what's the bigger intention behind the intention. It helps. It helps to have a, a sort of uh, large intention. So <clears throat> the intention here behind the, this whole retreat is to develop moment-to-moment mindfulness. That's the purpose of all these techniques. To actually be completely awake to the presenting moment. Okay. And of course the um, our Nature is not to stay there. We like to live in the future or live in the past. Or We don't like to be completely in the present moment unless it's really happy. <laughs> unless we're really, really enjoying it. Is that it? Any <clears throat> other questions? We'll meet, of course, tomorrow in case something comes up. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance.
May you be liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. Now your response is sadhu, sadhu. Which means well done, you see. Now you can imagine how I feel if I don't get sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> it's desperate, isn't it? Very good. So we have some uh, walking and then at quarter past... Um, Come in again and I'll come in to do the walking meditation with you and we'll sit the last period together and finish with metta.